You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It's my pleasure to introduce Wendy Kopp. As you likely know, she founded Teach for America 20 years ago, and she's grown Teach for America to over 8,000 people teaching in 39 urban areas and rural communities, and there's a network of over 20,000 alumni. Who is part of Teach for America here today? Raise your hand. Let's give them an ovation for the work that they do. Wendy is also the co-founder and CEO of Teach for All, a global network of independent organizations working to expand educational opportunity across the world. And she's the author of two books. The first is One Day, All the Children, The Unlikely Triumph of Teach for America and What I Learned Along the Way, published in 2000. How many of you have read it? Great. Shame on the rest of you. Buy it. (laughs) And then there's a new one just coming out, A Chance to Make History. What works and what doesn't in providing an excellent education for all. Wendy, we are so thrilled to have you here. Welcome to Stanford. Thank you. Uh, Well, I am really excited to be able to, um, I'm feeling badly about the people who are standing in the back, but hopefully you all can sit down (coughs) if you'd rather, et cetera. Um, I'd love to just have a real discussion with you all. I'm going to tell some merger between the the kind of entrepreneurial story of Teach for America um, and the story of, I guess, why I myself and and my colleagues in this work feel just extraordinary urgency and sense of possibility um, about the, the future in this effort to ensure educational opportunity for all. Um, but, but I'll just kind of start with the story um, and, and just say that I feel very, very lucky that I somehow landed on this idea a little over 20 years ago when I was a senior at Princeton University. Um, you know, it's, I look back and think, I mean, this seems like sort of a surreal story to me as I even retell it, um, but what brought me to this was a couple of things coming together. On the one hand, as a public policy major, and really more importantly, just a concerned citizen and college student, I had started, you know, I'd just gotten more informed and more concerned about educational inequity in our country. Just the fact that, you know, this is a country that aspires to be a place of equal opportunity, and yet where you're born really determines your educational prospects and in turn, life prospects. That seems like a fundamental massive injustice in, given, given our ideals. Um, and so I was doing things that college students do when they're concerned about issues, including organizing conferences around it and that kind of thing. At the same time, you know, our generation at the time was called the me generation. That was the label. You know, we supposedly just all wanted to go work on Wall Street and work for management consulting firms. And I just thought, you know, that this wasn't a generational issue. It wasn't about our generation. It was about the fact that those were the only recruiters. And I actually, I think that's great if that's what you know you really want to do. It's just that there were so many people I knew, um, and I was one of them, who were just searching for something else and weren't finding it, who were looking for a way to write out of college, assume a significant responsibility that would make a real difference in the world. And one day, all of that came together into this idea. You know, why aren't we being 
why aren't we recruiting all these talented graduating seniors as aggressively to commit two years to teach in our highest poverty communities as we were being recruited at the time to commit two years to work on Wall Street. Um, I needed a thesis topic, decided to propose this in the thesis, and just became all the more obsessed as I went through that process about the potential power of the idea. Um, you know, in the short run to channel all of this talent and energy into classrooms in our hardest to staff schools in remote rural areas and inner city urban areas. I thought that would make a significant difference for kids growing up today. And at the same time, I thought, you know, how powerful would it be in the kind of overall consciousness and priorities of our country to have our future leaders have their first experience be teaching in low-income communities in, instead of working on Wall Street. Um, so it, it was just clearly an idea whose time had come. Um, the timing was so perfect, it's hard to even capture as I look back. The mood on college campuses was very conducive to this. There were lots of people who really were searching for something else. Um, in corporate America, there had just been this big summit of, of uh, corporate leaders come together and say, we have to do something to improve education. They didn't know what that was. Um, and many of those became, those people quoted in the Fortune magazine articles about this summit, became the first donors of Teach for America. So, you know, we had timing on our side. And, um, and this was just an idea that magnetized a lot of people right off the bat. So in our first year, 2,500 graduating seniors responded to a grassroots recruitment campaign, which at the time was flyers under doors. I mean, imagine what it would be today. I don't, I don't know. Um, but we selected and trained and placed 500 of them and um, inspired a bunch of people in corporate America and in the philanthropic community to donate $2.5 million to fund the first year's cost. So one year after I graduated, I was looking out on an auditorium full of 500 um, uh, people who had signed up to be the first Teach for America Corps members. Um, I could tell that part of the story in, in much greater detail, and it's actually the part of our story that's probably told the most and, and in the most detail. But as I view it, I mean, really, that was the beginning of the real Teach for America story. That was the beginning of immense learning curves on every front. Um, most importantly, as those 500 people started teaching um, and you know, basically hit the wall in their schools and realized how challenging this was going to be. And we realized that we had our work cut out for us um, to be successful in this um, and went through then immense learning curves and probably will never finish the learning curve. I mean, there's always so much more to be done, but around understanding how do we recruit and select um, and train and develop teachers who are um, not just surviving in classrooms with their kids, but actually excelling, um, truly putting their kids on a different trajectory and learning the lessons that come from that, leaving their experience not more disillusioned about the possibility of change, but more committed about the possibility of change. Um, so we've gone through 20 years and we'll keep going through more years of intense learning curves around that question. Um, there were also many organizational learning curves, um, you know, around how to actually, you know, sustain the scale that we started at, let alone 
um, you know, grow. And, um, you know, just to, to name a couple of them, I mean, I started out in this thinking that management, you know, all the things that we would put in that bucket of things was, you know, not worth my time or energy. And it, it turned out that whether or not we would fulfill our mission and potential to, to be a force for change would have everything to do with whether or not, you know, we just embraced all the hardcore lessons of, you know, how do you build a high-performing organization? Um, and there were huge learning curves financially as well. Uh, you know, I said we started out with $2.5 million of funds, and our second year we raised $5 million, and our third year we raised $7.5 million, and then all of our first funders started dropping off in $500,000 and $1 million chunks for various reasons. And, you know, we learned the very, very hard way that we were going to have to figure out a revenue strategy that would enable us to even keep this afloat, let alone enable us to, to, to seriously grow. Um, so we went through a decade of, you know, going through a lot of these learning curves. And really, as of our 10th year, finally, we had gained some measure of stability. Um, so this is 10 years ago. We had, at that point, still 1,000 teachers in the midst of their two years. We were working across 11 communities. We had a $10 million operating budget. But we had finally gotten our act together, you know, on numerous fronts. Um, our program was much stronger. Um, our organizational management systems and our financial kind of setup was much stronger. And we felt like we had room to finally step back and ask ourselves, okay, now given everything we've learned, um, you know, how are we going to fulfill our potential as a force for change? And we came to believe that we needed to get just much bigger and, and much better um, and launched a, a growth plan, which turned into another growth plan and another growth plan. And so now, as we prepare to celebrate our 20th anniversary, um, you know, we're making lots of progress. We have 8,000 teachers today in the midst of their two years um, working across, as you heard, 39 communities. We're providing 15 to 20% of the new hires in, across those communities on, on average. Um, and our alumni force, uh, as, as you heard, is, is 20,000 strong. And, and our budget's $200 plus million a year. And because as we've scaled, we've also endeavored to get much better at what we do, to continue the continuous improvement um, effort, uh, which is leading us to understand a great deal about what uh, <coughs> teachers who are truly putting their kids on a different trajectory are doing differently and how we can train and develop more teachers to, to teach that successfully. Um, so our program has gotten a lot stronger and every year becomes stronger and stronger. And at the same time, uh, we're doing a lot more to maximize the impact of our alumni force um, through both fostering the community among them, but also undertaking initiatives to accelerate their leadership, um, to get these folks who have the foundational experience of having taught in this context to get into positions of educational leadership, political leadership, policy and advocacy leadership to launch social enterprises earlier than they otherwise would so that they can be a force uh, for ultimately fundamental change. And I think, um, I think the lessons that we learned the very hardest possible way, and my first book really documents this in kind of painful detail, 
Um, but those lessons were so, you know, so fundamental because we learned them in the hardest possible way. I mean, through many near-death experiences and whatnot. Um, and really were the foundational <laughs> lessons that informed the growth we then undertook. And, you know, growth brings many new challenges, um, but, but it also brings many advantages. And, and we were able to uh, work the advantages to attract a totally different level of resources, a totally different level of talent. Uh, and, and, and that helped us undertake the kind of new learning curves that it would take to do what we're doing on a, on a much bigger scale. Um, I've recently spent a good amount of time you know, over the last year or two, again, with our team, uh, but stepping back to reflect on now where, where are we? You know, where are we in the larger education reform effort? Where are we as an organization and, and where are we headed? And, you know, just want to share a little bit about that, uh, kind of where that thinking and reflection has, has taken us just as context and then would love to open it up and talk about whatever you all want to talk about. Um, I think, you know, to try to give the short answer here, when I think about where we are today in, in this education reform effort, you know, we're at a, at a place I never would have predicted we could be at, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and 20 years ago. When I got into this in the U.S., the prevailing notion fueled by all the research was that kids' race and socioeconomic background on average, determine their educational prospects. We did not have evidence that schools could overcome the effects um, of socioeconomic background. And if we had gone and looked hard, I think it would have been hard to find even a handful of schools that were showing that actually it is possible. Um, I'm not sure we could have found one, but let's just say we even could have found one or two people would have chalked those up to charismatic school leaders and would have presumed that if they left, the whole thing would fall apart. Now, fast forward to today, we have indisputable evidence in hundreds of classrooms, but also in hundreds of whole schools, that it is completely possible to provide kids facing all the extra challenges of poverty with an education that is transformational, meaning not just have a few kids beat the odds, which through our country's history we know it's always possible, but to put whole buildings full of kids um, who, based on their socioeconomic background, would be predicted to have a 50% chance of graduating from high school and would be predicted to have about an eighth grade skill level if they did, on a trajectory that leads them to graduate from college at the same, much the same pace as kids in, in more privileged communities. This is pretty radical progress. Um, now we still have massive challenges ahead. Like if you look at the aggregate data, despite all the proof points, despite seeing now, wow, we know what's possible, we even know how to replicate success, there's still a massive question about how do we do that at the scale of the magnitude of the problem. If you look at the aggregate data, we still have not moved the needle, you know, against the achievement gap in, in any, really at all, but certainly not in a, in a meaningful way. And so we've got a very real question on our hands about how do we scale this level of success? Um, even to that question, there, you know, if you look at what's been happening in the last five years, 
Five years ago, if we had convened a big summit of the thought leaders in education and philanthropy and whatnot and policy and had said, let's just let's put on a piece of paper the, the cities in our country where we really have no hope at all for the public school system, we would have had a big debate. I don't know who would have been on the list, but certainly New Orleans would have been right up there. And so would Washington, D.C. And those are two of probably the two fastest improving urban school systems in the country right now. So, you know, not that the verdict is out in terms of we know that they've done what they need to do forevermore. I mean, the problems are still immense in those two places, but there's reason for optimism that we can affect dramatic positive change at the system level. Um, So all of this is, that's enough to fuel anyone's sense of urgency and sense of responsibility, right? Because now we know, wow, this can be done. So sort of a moral imperative to figure out how do we do it at a scale of of the problem. Um, And, you know, when you get into it, I believe that, I I guess I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what's going on in the places where the transformational change is happening, in the classrooms where that's happening, in the whole school buildings where that's happening, in the systems where we're starting to see evidence of serious positive change. And what I come to believe is that you know, the, the most, maybe the, the most, well, certainly the most foundational difference in, in those places where we see transformational ha- change happening is that the leader of those systems has committed themselves to a different mission than most of our public schools and even private schools commit themselves to. They have committed themselves to the mission of transformational education. Like they have said to themselves, we are going to put our kids on a different trajectory. And, and, you know, that is a mission. I mean, I went to a public school in Dallas, Texas. It was always on those top 10 lists of top public schools in the country. Do you think that was a transformational school? No. Bunch of people, bunch of economically privileged, pretty privileged kids showed up at school on a path to graduating from college and came out the other and four years later on a path to graduating from college. Perfectly good school, not a transformational school. And we have the same thing going on in our urban and rural schools, right? We've got lots of kids showing up on a path not to graduate from high school, let alone college, and they're coming out in the same way. So in order to make a difference in this, the most important thing we need is people to say, we're going to commit ourselves to a different mission for our public schools in economically disadvantaged communities. And then to accompany that commitment with a level of energy and discipline that you would find in any organization or any endeavor where people are taking on big, audacious goals. So all you, what you realize when you spend a lot of time in these contexts is that all the things that maybe many of you have seen in other sectors, um, you know, leaders who are obsessed first and foremost with building strong teams, with building a strong culture of excellence and achievement, with building systems for where every adult in the system holds themselves accountable and then is committed to continuous improvement, an ethic that, look, we're going to do whatever it takes to get to the end goal. You know, if, if we walked into any number, I mean, we could drive a couple miles and go to a schools in East Palo Alto and start talking to the teachers and the principals here and asking them, wait, why are the outcomes what they are? And they'd say, what can we do? You know, I mean, the kids are facing so many extra challenges. They're coming so far behind. I mean, there are limitations to what we can do. Limitations? These folks in the transformational environments don't think about limitations. They think about, well, this was the goal. 
got to do whatever it takes. Probably means we got to start the school day earlier and later, make it longer, bring in extra supports into the picture, but we're going to do whatever it takes to put kids on a different trajectory. Um, so, you know, the people who are in the transformational environments have figured out this is what it's about. It, it, I, one of the things I think is going on in the broader movement is that there are so many people who so desperately want to solve the problem tomorrow that instead of embracing the long, hard work of undertaking all that, we instead lurch from one kind of big silver bullet idea to the next. And I think we need to sort of realize there are no silver bullets. This is not as easy as, you know, <laughs> giving every kid a computer or deciding that we'll just fix teachers or we'll fix this or that. It's, it's we've got to commit ourselves to the whole shebang and ultimately create a policy environment that's conducive to building serious capacity in our education system. Um, and foundational, I mean, just circling back to the Teach for America story, um, what is informing our next five-year plan is just the recognition that we won't make this transition to a truly transformational school system in urban and rural areas without a leadership force of people who are working at every level of the education system, at every level of policy, who are the influencers in our country who know what you know when you've taught really successfully, which is in this context, which is that you know, they know it's possible to pull this off, and they have a very, they know there's no silver bullet. They know it's about just an enormous amount of hard work and organization building. And as a result, they're going to make decisions differently and create different policies and, and whatnot. So that's leading us to say, okay, so we've pulled off a good deal in the last decade, in the last two decades. We have a strong foundation to work from but we've got to just redouble our efforts, and we've launched a big and ambitious and hard plan, but um, to double and scale in the next um, five years so that we will be providing between 20 and 25% of the new hires across 60 communities. We'll double our alumni force in that time as well so that we'll have you know 40-plus thousand Teach for America alumni out there working in communities. Um, and, uh, and we're going to try to do all that while getting much better, ensuring that many more of our teachers are transformational teachers and that many more of our alums are in positions of leadership, running schools, running school systems, in positions of elected office and, and whatnot. Um, so that is, that's, uh, that, that's, that's our charge as we, as we move ahead. And I think I'll just end this by saying... Um, you know, there are a couple things I didn't probably fully get in there, but the most salient lesson of this work is that this is possible. You know, that this is, in fact, a solvable problem. And, you know, it's not that the people who join Teach for America don't think, of course it's possible, of course it's possible to help more kids attain a better education. But, I mean, we've really come to believe that, I think through this work, you come to realize we could actually do this, meaning we could get to the point where we have a situation where we're providing all of our kids in our country with an education that sets them up um, to have the full range of professional options and, and life options. And once you realize that, I mean, then you realize, wow, I mean, we could be part of that effort. And, and 
that's what that's what has kept me in this, and it's what has drawn many many other people to it. And um, and actually, I hope there are people in this room who will think about channeling their full time and your full time energies um, against this problem because we we need a lot of help if we're really going to pull it off. So should we open it up at that? Sure. And I get to kick it off. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for coming and sharing your story with us, and congratulations. Oh, and I have to stand up here, which means I have to pick up. I have so many mics, I feel like I'm on life support here. It's like, whew, okay. Um, first question, it seems like uh, you operate in a political minefield, that it is, it is a pretty challenging environment, and you've got a lot of forces that are deeply entrenched and have ways of doing certain things that control the vast majority of the resources going into, into the education system. And yet, you've tried to maintain a, a place of political, uh, uh, a, a Switzerland of politics and not getting into some of the political battles. On the other hand, you talked about how much you've learned about what works and what doesn't work. How do you navigate the politics while still trying to bring the learning to improve the overall education system? Um, well, one thing is that I just, I do deeply believe in this particular theory of change, right? Which means that I think that any one person or one organization coming out with its policy perspective is not as powerful as generating a force of thousands of our country's most talented leaders who know from their firsthand experience what the real answers are, and will then work this at every level of policy and from many different angles and perspectives. So I think keeping my eye on that ball, even when I'm very tempted to get pulled into a policy debate, which I do get tempted to do, and thankfully have people around me pulling me back, um, I, I know that in the end, actually, the education movement is going to be best you know, best uh, served if we stay focused on what we are the best in the world at, or at least aspire to be the best in the world at, which is to be the people pipeline that fuels all these other reforms. Um, I mean, the other piece of this I would say is that I probably just genuinely do have a view that, and, and I think it's a view shared by many, but probably not all of, of the folks in the Teach for America community, that I just think this is a deeply systemic problem. And this is not a problem in my mind that we have because we have unions or because teachers in low-income communities are terrible or because the parents of kids in low-income communities don't care. I mean, each of those groups has been the target of an incredible amount of kind of vitriol at one point or another. And you know, everyone's to blame. All those groups are to blame, and so are we, because we are citizens in this country. We are not informed about the issues. We are electing people who are not informed, et cetera. I mean, I just think this is a huge problem and that it isn't productive or fair to blame any one group. And so probably that perspective is a natural way to hold myself back in some of this stuff. Um, I, I think we all need to change now that we know what's possible to say, okay, how can we create a new, a new world? So Wendy, okay. yeah. whoever you want. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm a third grade teacher in East Palo Alto. And I would love to hear your thoughts on, well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big fan 
Um, I think it's, it's awesome that everything, you're, just all the energy you bring to it. Um, but I, I'm curious to know about, you're talking about this huge level of dedication that's required of, of teachers, and how do you deal with, um, if you could talk about kind of the burnout factor, that is a huge problem um, with teachers. Yeah, totally. So the question is from uh, this gentleman who, who's in his third year of teaching in, in East Palo Alto. You know, you talk about the huge level of dedication that's necessary um, to teach successfully in this context. How do you deal with the burnout factor? Um, and I think this is a, I mean, it's a perfect, uh, great question. And, and, and I, it's, it's one that I think a lot about because I actually don't believe that the answer to this problem is to expect hun- the hundreds of thousands of teachers in our urban and rural schools to themselves be <laughs> transformational teachers in our existing environments, which are not transformational environments. I mean, it's essentially asking hundreds of thousands of people to build islands of excellence in, in what in some cases are sort of seas of dysfunction, not necessarily because of even the people in that puzzle, but just because schools have not been set up to meet the extra needs of the kids in this context. And um, I actually personally believe that, you know, teachers is the latest silver bullet. It's like everyone just thinks, oh, that's the answer. If we could just get to the point where we have 3.7 million high-performing teachers in this country, that would solve the problem. I think what's led me to be skeptical of that is just our own experience. Like, you know, this book, which I just wrote, which will soon come out, called A Chance to Make History, is, uh, takes its title from one of our teachers who you know, walked into her ninth grade biology class in the Bronx and said to her kids, you know, this is your chance to make history, and put them on this quest you know, to take the regent's exam and pass it. And you know, what she did, it, it's so humbling to, to get to know a teacher like that. And honestly, it's overwhelming and humbling and everything else. Like the teachers who are doing what Megan Brousseau, this teacher, pulled off, they're extraordinary. We need many more of them given the state of affairs today. But all you have to do is spend time with them to realize this is not ultimately our answer. Now, I think it's possible to create whole schools that make it much easier to teach that way and that make it possible to sustain the level of success. Um, and, and in fact, many of the very high-performing charters were started by teachers who were themselves transformational teachers who thought there has got to be a better way for the teachers, for the kids. Let's create a whole building that is actually designed to foster and facilitate this. Um, and now I think the challenge is how do we scale that? But I, I think it's sustainable if we take this on from a system perspective and try to build the systems that... Um, that make it possible to, to teach successfully without being an absolute superhero. In the meantime, I think we need as many superheroes as we can get, and I think that our best bet for building the leadership force necessary to affect the structural and systemic changes is to, is to fuel as many leaders as we can into teaching so that they then go off and pioneer the bigger changes. Yeah. Um, so you were talking about your initial um, work, like, you know, the initial marketing campaign for Teach for America pushing flyers on your doors and kind of like a grassroots approach. And um, it's very exciting to hear that from an undergraduate perspective. Um, it's very empowering to think that you can start a major nonprofit organization or a major movement 
um, with something as small as a flyering campaign on campus. So I wonder if you could talk more about the entrepreneurial process that you took um, when you were starting this organization, any advice you have to young social entrepreneurs, um, anything along those lines. Um, so the question is, uh, can you talk more about sort of the, the initial entrepreneurial process, essentially? Um, so, you know, the, one of the biggest assets I had was the fact that there was a thesis requirement at Princeton, in all honesty, because it sort of, it, it was my opportunity to develop the plan and argument for the creation of this organization, and I think... I'm not sure I would have spent four months and done lots of research and developed, you know, at least what I thought at the time was a well thought through plan for the launch of this if I hadn't had that. And I mean, this is sort of obvious, but maybe not to everyone. I mean, I think really taking the time to do the research and develop the plan initially is, you know, clearly step one. Um, I think. I mean, I say all the time, too, and it sounds maybe flippant, but I really, really, truly mean it. I mean, I think the other big asset I had was my inexperience. And, um, like, I didn't know what was impossible. Um, and I think there are just, there's much to be said for that. And, and it's, it's, there's also much to be said for experience. But I don't think we would have Teach for America today if I had known at some level more than, than I knew then. So embrace, the point is embrace your inexperience, don't be held back by it, it can be an asset. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I would say, I think, is, you know, in order to get this off the ground, I needed a lot of help. Um, and in particular, and most dauntingly at the time, I needed a lot of money. Um, so I spent my first, that seemed like the most daunting piece of this to me. Like I developed this plan. I had this idea that it just had to start with 500 people. I mean, that was based on various convictions around conveying that this was a, you know, a movement and not a little program. I needed to surround it with a sense of urgency and national importance. But that was going to cost $2.5 million, and where was that money going to come from? So I spent the first, after I got the initial seed grant, um, I spent the, from one of those people quoted in the Fortune article I mentioned earlier. Um, and I mean, I just wrote letters to these people blindly. Those people and some other randomly selected corporate executives, like the CEOs of major companies I'd heard from. I mean, talk about the power of inexperience. Some of those people actually met with me. I mean, you know, so just got to embrace the inexperience. Um, but I spent the first three months after I graduated from college just trying to get into doors. Of course, this is more challenging than it seems now. You know, I would send 100 letters and get, like, a meeting or two, but then work out from those people to try to meet others. And I think, you know, I got lots and lots and lots of no's. And I think one thing I came to see and probably just knew intuitively is this is a search for allies. You actually don't need everyone. You need a few true allies. And I, I feel like my whole last 20 years has been a search for allies. And, you know, what I ultimately realized, too, is that, you know, the people you meet in that first summer may say no and no and no for the next 12 years, and in year 13 could be your biggest enabler. And I wish I'd known that then, um, because I would have been much nicer to everyone and kept in touch with everyone. Uh, but it really is a true, I mean, gosh, it's just a law of life I've now discovered. Um, 
I don't know. That, that's, that's maybe some of it. Honestly, it was an immense amount of hard work. It was extraordinarily stressful. Yes, I was constantly thinking the whole thing was going to fall apart. Um, yeah. Yes. So I have immense um, respect for TFA, and I personally consider they just got off the phone with a friend who's teaching through TFA in Boston. But um, how would you respond to criticism that TFA teachers aren't sufficiently skilled um, just through summer training, and that um, you know elite students from our nation's best colleges aren't necessarily the best teachers? And that TFA is a band-aid solution that's not sustainable because people just go in for two years and then um, move on. Yes. Okay. Multi-part question. Hopefully I will remember all the parts. Um, How do I respond to critics that uh, people from elite colleges are not necessarily the best teachers um, for kids in this context? That... Um, the Teach for America Corps members are not skilled enough, well-prepared enough after a summer training, and that this is a Band-Aid program because they just, you know, people who commit two years, how can that solve the whole problem? Is that, okay. So let me just take each of those. Um, so first of all, um, Teach for America recruits, contrary to most perceptions, far and wide. Our, our core last year represented 500 colleges and universities across the country, um, but we do recruit most aggressively at the most competitive colleges in the country. You know, so when you look at the U.S. News and World Report list of the top 350 colleges in the country, those are pretty much our recruitment priorities. Um, I do think that that is, is critical. You know, we need our most well-educated, most skilled folks to channel their energy into ensuring that the education of the next generation is as strong as it can possibly be. That is not the reality today. Um, if you actually take a hard look at who p- decides to go into teaching on average, um, you will find that it's, it's generally not the most capable people graduating from the most selective colleges. And I think we, we have to change that. Um, now, there are exceptions to all those rules. There are definitely people we would die to have within Teach for America who are at college number 750 on the selectivity list, and there are definitely awesome people at some of the most competitive colleges going into teaching without Teach for America. So there are the outliers, but in terms of where the lion's share of Teach for America's resources should go, I think we are doing a great service by making teaching a cool thing to do at, at these very uh, selective colleges. Um, We've also spent a lot of time, though. I I think our selection process is not what some perceive it to be. Um, It's not like we think, oh, great, any Harvard 3, or Stanford, I should say, since I'm at Stanford, 3.5 GPA person should get into Teach for America. No. We have spent enormous amounts of time and energy trying to understand what are the personal characteristics that are differentiating the teachers who are, in fact, transformational teachers. And we've developed a predictive selection model. No selection model is perfect. Ours does get better and better each year based on the data. It gets more and more predictive. It's probably one of the most predictive selection models out there based on this is what selection experts tell us. Um, What we've found is that people who have track records of achievement across academics, extracurriculars, or work experience, people who demonstrate perseverance in the face of challenges, uh, people who have the ability to influence and motivate others, um, who are, have a level of organizational ability, problem-solving ability, um, and who approach this with respect and humility, 
um, in terms of how they work with others are more likely to be successful. So we've developed all sorts of different screens that try to identify those folks. And they can come from anywhere, um, but who, who demonstrate those, those characteristics. In terms of the preparation, um, you know, <clears throat> there's first of all probably a lot of truth to the fact that, you know, I, I think there's no pre-service program that can <laughs> eliminate the learning curve that comes along with, you know, being a first-year teacher in any environment, let alone in the environments that, that we're operating in. Um, but we've learned a lot, again, about what, not just what the characteristics of the transformational teachers are as they come in, but how they teach. And um, we've seen quite extraordinary patterns that, uh, of, across those folks, and as a result have developed um, an understanding of what the kind of mindsets and skills and knowledge are that teachers need in order to be truly successful in this particular environment. So we've developed a very intense, very goal-oriented pre-service program. I would put it up against any pre-service program in the country by a long shot. Um, if what we're talking about is producing teachers who will be prepared to affect significant academic gains with their kids in low-income communities. And then we know that actually the biggest issue is, you know, what kind of management and training, ongoing professional development do they get once they are as unique people in their unique environments. And we've done a lot to invest in, in that piece as well um, to help them do, you know, to do what any good manager would do. Um, so we've, we're doing a lot. The evidence would show that, in fact, I mean, first of all, the majority of the principals say that the Teach for America Corps members are better trained than their other new teachers. Just opinion, you know, it's just what they think. Um, but more importantly, the data would show that these folks are in fact more successful as new teachers than other new teachers and even in some cases than more experienced teachers in their schools. Um, so <laughs> that's what I would say to, to those critics and I would invite them in because I think people are completely shocked when they realize what Teach for America puts into the training and support of, of its teachers. Um, and then finally to the Band-Aid question, you know, I think it's important, and it's very easy to lose this in the halls of academia, but to remember that the nature, the, the magnitude of the crisis we have, right? So 15 million kids growing up in poverty. By the time they're in fourth grade, they're three grade levels behind. Half of them will not graduate from high school, and the half who do will have an eighth grade skill level. If you are a kid in a low-income community, you, are, you have a 10% likelihood of graduating from college. This is a crisis. It exists despite the efforts for decades of very well-intentioned policymakers, deans of teacher education, school superintendents. In the light of that challenge, we need out-of-the-box solutions. And this one is about saying, you know what, let's make this the cause of our future leaders. Let's be sure that the most capable people, the people who Goldman Sachs most wants and you know, a lot of other places most want, channel their energy against this problem. Let's invest in those people, make sure that they're as successful as they can be, that they learn as many of the right lessons as we, they can learn, and then let's support them to go out and figure out what is the solution to that crisis. We think a lot of those people are probably going to have to stay in education. 
No one would have predicted 65% of these folks who were not going to go into teaching would stay long-term in education, but they do. 65% of our 20,000 alums are working full-time in education. Half of them as teachers, 600 of them as school principals, many others as district leaders. Um, but honestly, some of them have to leave because all you have to do is work in schools to realize you know, we're not going to solve, I mean, we're definitely not going to solve this problem from outside the system alone, and that's why many people have to stay, but we can't solve it from within schools alone. We need policymakers and the people who most influence them to understand this problem in a way that almost no one understands it today. Um, so th that's, you know, it's, it's a counterintuitive theory of change. And I'm sorry to be rambling like this, but the other, uh, just quickly, you know, I, I tell this story in my book about um, my little eight-year-old who's writing a school paper and is supposed to interview someone who's, you know, solved the problem. And he starts interviewing me, and he goes through this whole thing, and I think we're done. He's like, Mom, you know, one more question. And he says, if this is such a big problem, like, you know, the fact that, like, kid, poor kids don't have a good education, why would you ask the most inexperienced people to take it on. And literally, I mean, I was, I was so, I was dying when he asked this question because, I mean, this is my own son. He believes in his mom, you know, as kids typically do. And I realized at that point why I've done nothing for 20 years but try to help people understand this theory of change. Like, it's so counterintuitive, um, you know, that, that my son wouldn't get it after all of this. So anyway. Um, but it is, I really, it's working, like, you know, and, and I, that was the one piece I realized as I rambled through my initial talk that I actually didn't spend any time at all talking about what we see happening in communities today. Um, but, you know, we've been placing in some of, placing teachers in, in some of these communities now for a decade, 15 years, some of them 20 years, places like, you know, Houston and Newark and D.C. and New Orleans and Oakland and Chicago and any number of other places, remote rural communities as well. And I've seen the change in these communities. Um, there is a level of optimism about the possibility of change. There is hardcore evidence. There is huge momentum. There is change that, you know, literally 10 years ago, people could not have predicted. It's happening for many reasons. It's not just, how, you know, it's not like I'm saying it's just Teach for America. It's just that if you took all the Teach for America people out of the picture, you would take away most of the energy, the leadership. The, you'd take away the people at the center of that effort. And um, all you have to do is go see it for yourself to realize that it's really true. Like there's something very powerful. I'm sure I didn't really understand how this was going to work when I first started in, but... There is a very powerful transformative experience for teachers who teach successfully in this context, and it changes every decision they make after that, every life decision, career decision, and what they say when they're in the big <laughs> policy rooms as, as well. And in the end, there's something very important about that. Okay, yes? So one of the key transitions you mentioned was developing a well-managed and well-organized um, organization. So I was wondering if you could talk about your, the evolution of your approach to management and how you manage today and what are some of the metrics that you might look at. Um, so the question is about, uh, you know, what I mentioned as the kind of importance of the, the learning curve I went through around good management. He was just asking how, how are 
you know, sort of what have I learned and, and what's my approach. Um, you know, I think, I mean, this is very basic, I guess. I mean, first of all, I love Jim Collins. Like, I read Jim Collins' books, and I'm just like, yes, this is it. So, I mean, and he's so much better at articulating all this than I would be. But, I mean, I really just deeply believe everything that has come out of his research around Built to Last and, and Good to Great. And, but I think it came there through a long and winding curve. I mean, I think, first of all, the notion that people are everything um, and that, I mean, it's, it's very hard to act on this lesson, actually. I mean, every day I think to myself, actually, I should stop everything I'm doing right now and just spend all of my time looking for the people who have what it takes to lead us forward in any given number of areas beyond where I could personally even fathom how to take us. You know, like, it's sort of, I think at every turn, I've probably not quite acted on that enough, but I do intellectually know and... You know, that is the key to everything. Um, we've put a lot into, I sort of came the hard way to realizing that we were going to have to really approach the development of our own culture at Teach for America in a, in a pretty systematic way. And, um, you know, we've built a culture around our, our core values that I think is one of our, you know, greatest assets. Um, I think the fact that we go through these kind of five-year planning cycles where we step back, really center ourselves in our theory of change and ask ourselves, you know, what are the key priorities? What are the big goals in those areas has been a powerful lever. I think just taking the time to reflect, aligning everyone in our now, you know, 1,500 staff person organization, all of our boards nationally and in those 39 regions, you know, all of our funders around, here's where we're going, here's how we're measuring success, um, has been, you know, very fundamental to, to our growth. Um, th those are some of the, we've built a very, you know, outcomes-oriented, data-driven. I can't claim to even be, I mean, thankfully I do have people around me who know how to do this much better than I do. And, um, you know, we've built a, a very data-driven and continuously improving organization. Yes? Um, so I had a question. Earlier you mentioned that uh, one of the biggest things you've struggled with over the last 20 years is convincing people that this counterintuitive model of you know, two years of teaching and then taking the best people and putting them into all sorts of uh, the different possible jobs and et cetera, et cetera, is going to help change the problem by putting the most inexperienced but smartest people into the classroom. And so I was wondering, um, at this point in my research, I did some quick research on TFA before I, I had applied to the program and I was really strongly considering um, you know, going forward with it. Um, so I saw that there are a lot of results, you know, like a lot of papers out there that cite Teach for America being very successful, um, but then that there are also a lot of really strong criticisms. Um, and I know you mentioned it briefly earlier, but I wanted to know how much does Teach for America focus on sort of communicating the fact that they are successful um, via media and marketing programs versus how much effort they put into continuing to develop and train uh, the teacher course, which is, you know, ultimately the mission of Teach for America. I guess it's a question of which do you approach first and which one do you put more emphasis on? Getting better results or communicating the fact that there are a lot of results and hey, you just need to back off and let us do what we do. Um, okay, so the question is, I mean, if you go do an internet search out there, you would find you would find these studies that show that the Teach for America core members are effective and actually 
I, I'm changing your question, but I mean, the most rigorous studies really do show this. But then you'd also find a lot of other stuff. You'd find a lot of criticisms. And, um, and you'd find even studies, by the way, that use some methodology or another and show that they're having a really negative impact. You'd find all sorts of stuff. And so his question was, how much of your time do you spend trying to get better um, and, trying to, and, and how much of your time do you spend trying to communicate the results that you already have? You know, in our case, the, the fact is we're, we're sort of our own biggest critics. You know, like I think we're not good enough. Um, it's not to say, I actually don't think that, I think many of the critics are just misinformed. And I think the fact is we're, we've got a very positive baseline out there. We've got teachers who are doing a responsible job who, you know, are, are I mean, this is certainly not irresponsible. But this is very, very hard. And the fact is that I, over time, what I've seen in our work is that some, I mean, some of our people have shown us what's possible, and yet others are not at all at that level. And so, you know, we spend most of our time trying to get better for the sake of the kids we're working with and for the sake of our long-term mission. You know, we're trying to figure out how do we get more of our people to be as successful as the most successful of them. Um, so I think in order to fulfill our potential, we have to do that. And I think uh, probably our marketing communications and public relations efforts haven't really been quite as sophisticated as they need to be. We try to fix that problem over time. But certainly, we're, we've got lots of sophistication going on on the effort to get not only bigger, but much better. Uh, yes. Uh, so my question is, uh, it seems like the conventional wisdom over the past 10 or 20 years, or maybe 10 or 20 years ago, was to set up admissions policies and funnel education monies at, at the secondary level to uh, scholarships and, and things that would almost uh, light at the end of the tunnel or, or carry it on a stick for those people that did want to graduate to, to make sure they made that transition from high school to college and it wasn't their socioeconomic background that held them back due to tuition costs or whatever. What would you say is the relative importance of those programs still today where you try to set up a, a ground-based, you know, bottoms-up approach to transforming those people uh, at, at an earlier level? How much is it uh, still important to provide that light at the end of the tunnel? Um, so the question is, uh, you know, 20 years ago there were lots of programs like providing scholarships for the kids in urban and rural areas who you know, did make it into college to enable them to go. And, and those light at the end of the tunnel programs, you know, served some purpose. And how, how much are they still important today, like versus the effort to ensure that from an early age, you know, more and more people are set up to compete to get into college. And what I would say is, you know, it, you know I think we need to do a lot more than we're already doing, actually. Um, you know, I think the, the schools that are out there putting a whole new generation of kids on a path to getting into college are, you know, realizing how tough it is. I mean, actually, I don't think people realize how big the achievement gap is in college. You know, um, I just saw these stats, and sadly, I'm not going to be able to pull them up, but it's shocking to realize um, the dropout rate among kids who get into college uh, from low-income communities. And uh, actually, these schools that have done so much to help their kids access a new, you know, a, a new opportunity are now also putting a lot of energy into trying to figure out how do we 
address that? How do you know what kind of financial supports and community supports at the school at the college level um, are necessary to help people make it? Um, we we just did a whole piece on this in our alumni magazine, which uh, is kind of uncover unpacks all the different dimensions of the problem. But I, I think it's absolutely critical. I think it's a fundamental piece of the question. Yes. Uh, I have sort of a two-part question. <laughs> One, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your revenue model, just how, how Teach for America gets its money, um, what it spends on, what its operating budget is. I'll obviously answer what you will. And uh, how you plan to scale that over the next five years if you're going to grow so much. And two, um, just sort of curious, curious on my own part, how do you feel about programs that allow students to make money for their grades or that pay them to go to college that offer financial incentives for good grades for good academic performance? Um, so one question about what, what's our sort of revenue and expense model and, and another question around how, how do I feel about programs that provide kids financial incentives to do well. Um, on the latter question, uh, I mean, at some level, again, we have a huge crisis. We should experiment with anything that can truly create not just incremental change. Like, we don't need incremental change. We need, like, transformational change. I will admit I'm pretty skeptical that the transformational answer here is to pay kids for grades. Like, I, I don't think so. Like, the kids we work with, in, in especially in these transformational contexts, you know, you, you, you get the kids on a mission. You've never met kids more on a mission than the kids in these classrooms and these schools that we're talking about. And there's nothing that's more of an incentive than having a straight-up, heart-to-heart series of conversations with kids and their parents about the stakes for them if they, you know, either do or don't turn it around on, on the academic trajectory piece. And I just, I don't think we need the financial incentives, actually, but I think without the real conversation, people don't actually even know the stakes. So it's just not where I'd put my energy. But the more experiments around things that are well-intentioned, the better. You know, um, I, I, I thought that Roland Fryer just did a whole study that sort of showed that actually that those strategies, I don't want to get it wrong. I would look up his studies. I thought that it was a little more disparaging than his theory was at the beginning. Um, Revenue model, it's takes, it, Teach for America spends about $40,000 on every recruit from start to finish, meaning the time we start recruiting them to the time they go through a summer full of training to two years of ongoing professional development and support. Um, and so in a world where we'll have more than 9,000 teachers next year, our budget's about $250 million <laughs> or so. Um, we are, our 70% of our funding, the thing that we figured out the long, hard way, you know, um, in our first decade was that we could, that there's a constituency for improving local public schools. You know, there are school districts with budgets, there are states that are investing in trying to improve public schools. There are individuals and corporations and foundations that care about their local public schools. And what we realized is that we could, I mean, basically we've set up a system where, you know, we can only grow and sustain our presence in communities that are investing in it. And um, so it's on our team, like Emily Bobel here, who leads our Bay Area efforts, who's trying to figure out how do I build the support 
to double our impact in the Bay Area over the next five years. And in order to do that, she knows she's got to double the funding base from $10 million a year to $20 million a year. So how is she going to, you know, enlist the public support and most significantly, you know, since 70% of our support is private, the private sector support necessary to do that. The other 30% comes from some national philanthropy and some federal funding. We have to double our funding base in the next five years. It's pretty daunting, um, but we're going to open up 20 new sites, which is whole new, you know, local communities willing to invest in education reform, uh, grow in existing sites where there's just growing evidence of not only the possibility of change in education, but the role Teach for America is playing. I, we would we desperately need to convince the federal government to invest more, and that is a saga that you don't have time to listen to, and I don't know what the solution is. And on that cheerful note, yes. <laughs> we're out of time. We want to thank you very much. It was thank it was you. Really wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.